also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Hello and welcome to this free episode of The Bottleman. It is once again me, Riley, in London. And I am, as ever, joined by uh, my co-host, who you may know as uh, the guy from Wolfpack. It's Dan Beckner. Dan, how's it going? <laughs> Good, man. Uh, just living the life. Loving, loving being in Wolfpack. Uh, hoping that Wolfpack can get back on stage uh, once everything chills out with this uh, whole pandemic situation. Mm-hmm. That's right. And we are pleased to be also joined today by uh, our our producer, uh, as well as the host of uh, Hell of a Way, Pod- Hell of a Way to Die podcast, and uh, also from TF podcast. It's Nate. Nate, how's it going? Hello, I'm doing very well. How are you? Ah, uh, yes, we're, we're all doing very well here in podcast land. But uh, Dan, yeah, I'm I would like I would like uh, can we do a coffee run? Yeah, let's do a coffee run. Real quick. Um, um, it's should... 2011. Okay. And I would okay. like one. All right. Uh, um, what do you think? I know a really cool Tim Hortons. It's a little out of the way. Uh, uh, well, I got time. Okay. You know? uh, it's, it's 2011. Uh, Dead Mouse is driving us for a, one of his famous coffee runs like he did with Rob Ford. Well, we might not be able to get there with Dead Mouse driving us. We might have to get into... Uh, we might have to take an international flight and then get into a troop carrier um, because this... This Tim Hortons is in Kandahar. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, if it's good, no. Uh, that, what's it's Dan, actually how... the ratings on it are um, just so-so. <laughs> why does this not surprise me, <laughs> Dan? Why is there a Tim Hortons in Kandahar? Uh, there's a Tim Hortons in Kandahar because um, because the Canadian taxpayers <laughs> ended up footing four million dollars to build one uh on behest of uh the canadian military and um the owners of the tim hortons coffee chain so and uh i i I assume it is it is still open yes no sadly it 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 lasted six six short glorious years Mm -hmm. of uh rolling up the rim to win in uh in non-colona locations yes so so essentially, uh, this got built in, I believe, 2007. Um, I'm just going to read from a little bit from two, uh, two different articles that kind of bookend this saga. Uh, one is from the National Post, November 19th, 2007. Uh, it reads, The top generals have spoken. Tim Horton's coffee and donuts would be brought to Canadian troops in Kandahar without fail. <laughs> Uh, but as internal military documents reveal, some Defense Department planners charged with executing that order had concerns about the novel project and whether, including whether essential equipment destined for Canadian forces in Afghanistan might have to take a backseat to the restaurant chain's supplies. Not to mention whether other food and beverage companies would complain about favoritism towards Canada's iconic coffee empire. Um... um. <laughs> Uh, I just I need to read this Uh, on March 14th 2006 as Prime Minister Stephen Harper was holding his historic first meeting with Hamid Karzai at the presidential palace in Kabul the Canadian military planners met in Ottawa to discuss how to set quote set up a Timmy's in the stand 
Uh, oh my god as one uh, nate how does that I, mean, <laughs> I was gonna ask how does that how does this entire plan to basically um try to take like a seed of canadian culture in the form of the double double and just sort of move it wholesale to uh kandahar strike you well i mean i, I think the, the thing to bear in mind here is that this is probably more a case if i were to hazard a guess of Canadian troops stationed at Kandahar Airfield being like, well, that's fucked up. They've got Burger King and Domino's. Why can't we have Canadian fast food here? And the sort of, no no offense as American on this show, a sort of like the the Canadian drive to just sort of like, well, we can do it just as good as they can kind of thing uh, and, and therefore introduce it and in this enormous logistical hurdle. And I'm going to guess it was probably like if it wasn't operated out of a shipping container, it was probably packed into a big shipping container and then unloaded. Um, but most of the fast food franchises that it would was. be on military bases were in shipping containers or, 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 or might as well have been. But the thing I would say is that it's... As I understand it, the Canadian presence in Afghanistan was always relatively limited. So it's kind of funny to me because this would be, uh, this would be the equivalent of like you know, basically everybody they, they, for for it to make sense as like a thing people are going to use and partake in. You, you're you're kind of creating a patriotic obligation for every Canadian soldier deployed to a combat zone to buy a fucking double double because it's just a uh, it's just a, it's a strange affectation to me, but like. I, I was never. I never went to Kandahar Airfield, but I did go to Bagram a number of times. And there are, you know, there was an Orange Julius there. There was a Burger King there. There's like a military affiliated franchise of coffee shops called um, Green Beans that now exists in the civilian world, right. but at the time was only like on bases and stuff. So like it was sort of like like military Starbucks. Um, so the the to me, it's more it's, like uh, bringing the war back home. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had a I had an insane experience where I was literally going to the funeral of one of my former soldiers and I had to fly into San Francisco and I got off the plane in San Francisco and there was a fucking green beans in the arrivals lobby and I was just sort of like, oh, what is happening here? Um, the uh, the thing I was going to say, though, is that to me it would be what would be much, much funnier would be if instead of this being a thing targeting the Canadian military on Kandahar Airfield, is if they had completely misunderstood the fucking bill of loading or whatever. And they're like, no, we're going to open it up in Kandahar City. Like they just opened up a Tim Hortons in the middle of Kandahar. <laughs> and then it's just really like, yeah, this is, this is what Canada is, guys. And just see what happens from there. I mean, to be honest, that might have been some serious Canadian soft power. Well, to you, I mean, to your point about patriotism, uh, there's a, here's two quotes from uh, Afghan, uh, Afghanistan Commander Brigadier General David Fraser uh, told C uh, CTV, Tim Hortons better get its ass over here as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and General Hillier, General Hillier himself during a conference of a defense association said, uh, quote, there's nothing more, there's nothing more Canadian than sipping a double double in Kandahar airfield where you're watching a hockey game. So... Yeah, it was a patriotic enterprise. <laughs> yeah, man, that's right. <laughs> there is nothing more Canadian than uh, going to Kandahar and having some fast food, man. That's so cool. <laughs> um, so, what are the reasons, right, that we're we're talking about about the um, this uh, non-standard uh, Timmy's uh, is that as as I'm sure as a lot of as I'm sure we've we've all seen, right, the. Um, the pullout of uh, sort of 
uh, of Western troops generally from Afghanistan has more or less been completed. Uh, the um, and the country is now back in control of the Taliban. And uh, I think what what is now happening is a, I mean, among, many, among other things, is a a reexamination uh, of of the last two decades of uh, imperial war uh, that has been care. Oh, war. Uh, a, a war, a colonization project, a failed state building project, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, and, and it is it is a make work project. Yeah, um, um, absolutely, uh, a make work project for uh, Tim Hortons builders, um, and I think it's do, it is good for it is it is good to have to make some time for historical memory at this point to remember how we how and why we got there, what we actually intended to do. How that ended up getting sold, and how even on its own merits, it was uh, uh, its own merits being bad, obviously, uh, was a kind of strange, impossible swindle on more or less everyone involved. Um, and so, to that point, I think it's worth it's worth talking about. It's worth ta- remembering how Canada in Afghanistan saw itself and because we've talked about this before on the show right that canada sees itself as a benign middle power that ever since uh lester b pearson invented peacekeeping for mm-hmm. no one ever kept peace before him uh it was it was never anything else but since, since pearson invented peacekeeping canada has been this benign international presence that sort of um wants to just spread its own uh liberal goodness around the world uh, through dint of its uh, sheer uh, <laughs> morality. Yes. Right? Um, and sort of it's, it's, Ill, it's, it's helpful, though, to remember, right, that uh, there has never been an imperial war uh, that the um, bloodthirsty Canadian media didn't support, and there have been very few uh, that we didn't decide to uh, go into wholeheartedly. And you can remember in sort of in, in, in the UK, where Nate and I are, in the US, where Nate is from, in Canada, where we're both from, uh, after September 11th, in the lead up to the invasion of Afghanistan, there was a sort of adventurist mania that, that gripped um, all, all of these societies. This uh, extreme optimism that if you tried to gainsay, you were uh, sort of pr- considered either a spoil sport or a terrorist yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you, Dan, for your perspective on this because I was I was uh, 16 when 9/11 happened. I was almost 17. Um, you know, when the U.S. first sent troops into Afghanistan um, in October 2001. Uh, I mean, I'm from the north side of Indianapolis, and I don't really recall there being any outcry besides "go fuck them up" kind of thing. Like, I'm sure there were some anti-war protests in the state of Indiana, probably. Um, maybe in in Indianapolis, certainly in college towns, but they would have been really muted and small. I heard stories of people basically attacking one uh, in Bloomington, Indiana, where I went to school later on. And uh, the impression that I got was sort of like, this was just going to happen. I just kind of remember it being like, oh, well, I guess they're doing this and not there being a lot of outcry around it. And that's probably indicative of, you know, where I grew up and and the fact that both both my parents were, were former military also. And I'm wondering because I can imagine that on one hand, 
they invoked Article 10 of the NATO Charter, and that brought, you know, Western European militaries, and as I understand the Canadians and um, Australians and New Zealanders into the war. But I'm wondering if you could maybe like describe what it was like at the time, because I mean, I can only imagine that the idea of Canada's military suddenly being turned around to do offensive operations in a foreign country, like it was a bit of a change of pace. And I'm wondering, like, you were an adult at that point, yeah. like what? Yeah, it was like. Well, I mean, I would use the term "adult" loosely uh, to describe me. <laughs> legally adult, but um, I was legally adult. I was legal. Yeah, I was barely legal. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, the the milieu that I ran with were um at the time I was I was a pretty committed um anarchist. You know, I had I'd been involved in like um anti-globalization protests obviously like had a pretty good background in anti-imperialism anti-war stuff and i was in the united states when 9-11 happened i, w I was on tour with uh modest mouse <laughs> so, oh wow so uh we played in san francisco and then um the next day we woke up in fresno at a hotel and 9-11 was in progress so uh, my band at the time decided to hightail it back to canada um and it was very chaotic. People were extremely afraid. Uh, there was a bomb threat at a Denny's that we stopped at, like immediately after we left the hotel. But one thing that stuck with me was we we stayed the night in Seattle in preparation to like cross the border because the border was was a fucking mess. And we stayed at mm -hmm. a, another punk rock kind of you know uh, same same political leanings. Punk rock friend of ours uh, stayed at his house. And I remember having a conversation with him where he was basically like, he said, if the, uh, if Al Qaeda comes here, if anyone tries to invade America, I will defend, uh, I will defend my house. I will defend my yard. He was talking about joining the military and, and looking back on that, I was like, that was the moment where I was like, oh, there, there's going to be a war. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then on the Canadian side, most of the people I, knew were obviously opposed to like international in intervention and especially opposed to Canada getting involved because the last I think the last thing we'd been involved with in any major capacity was was Bosnia in a yeah a, quote unquote like like peacekeeping and, um in fact if I also if I can yeah if, if I can jump in for one as well right like the Canada has done a very good job of like promoting its involvement in Bosnia as well as like effectively benign and yeah. we've, we've sold that very well. We don't like to talk about, about Bosnia that much because we actually like did... It was, it was Bosnia where we first like deployed combat units to like fight. Yes. Right? Yeah, and, that's But we right. don't like to talk about it. We like to... Are in the 1990s, as far as we're concerned, Canada, Canada was Romeo Dallaire in Rwanda and yeah. he was sort of bemoaning... He he was sort of there, powerless to do anything. We were the we were and the then, fucking yeah. traffic cops for the end of history. You know, when the end yes. of history happened, <laughs> yeah, uh, we we were directing traffic to make sure nobody nobody crashed into each other. Everyone was safe. But so so yeah, I guess you know, in the lead up to the invasion of Afghanistan, my gr the, the circle of people that I ran with um, were, I, I think, horrified to watch Canada lurch towards involvement in this in this conflict or occupation, but there was definitely a sense that there was nothing you could say or do about it. <laughs> like, yeah, like that, that, that's, that's my recollection of it uh, in America too. 
to be honest with you. I mean, I think that that the, the, the people have been talking about this lately, that there was this huge, you know, there was so much pushback against anybody who spoke out against the war in Afghanistan. I, 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 would, I would liken it to people who protested against the Gulf War, uh, very mm-hmm. small group of people that were very de- much demonized in the press and just like by people they encountered. Um, and I, yeah. uh, I got that impression. And then, I, so in a way, I was sort of like, I didn't really get the impression that there was, I, I reckon that had Canada, and, and please, we'll cut this out if I'm wrong here. My understanding is Canada did not get involved in the Iraq war. Yeah, that's, that's correct. That's correct. And so yeah. I, I think had, the, 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 had, had they, there would have yeah. been an outcry, but they didn't. But it struck me that Canada's participation in the war didn't really get, it didn't have the same kind of cultural knock-on effect that it had in America where it create, you know, the sort of like American sniper, lone survivor kind of shit. It's just a thing that happened that people sort of accepted like, oh yeah, some people from Canada who are in the military are getting sent to Afghanistan for some reason, you know, if it's 2011 or 2014 or whatever, or 2004. And that's just sort of part of the fabric now. But that's correct. it strikes yep. me that, and as I understand it, that was something that happened under uh, a conservative government and that was just sort of treated with inertia the same way it happened uh in other i mean in other countries but particularly obviously like in the united states and in the uk where in the uk blair was very pro intervention and we had the britain had troops in southern afghanistan until relatively recently so it actually uh much like the uk canada joined the fight in afghanistan under the auspices of a liberal government Yes. Oh wow! Yeah. I did not realize that. Yeah. Our um. So in fact, I have so just so this segues neatly into our uh sort of the high politics of it, the party politics of it, mm-hmm. um, where liberal foreign minister and later deputy prime minister John Manley said, "quote on this is October seventh, two thousand and one, if you want to play a role in the world, there's a cost to doing that, justifying why Canada had to go into Afghanistan, because one of the things we've talked about so much on this show is." Is that is that Canada has this dual character, right? And this is all part of the big sales program that Canada has with its own citizens and everyone else, which is that we are this a we are this benign force. Um, we are basically good, uh, but also we must matter, and we must do everything we can to matter. Otherwise, people are going to forget that we exist. Yes, and so and those two particular um, uh, sort of brain parasites are replete throughout the entirety of sort of the way that Canada conceived of its own role in Afghanistan, where we went in because if we didn't, we wouldn't matter. We already weren't at the table in Iraq. Uh, when we were in, um, our, our, our participation in, in Bosnia was, uh, you know, let's say, a, um, by the standards of someone who wants their military to look good, a major fuck up, uh, mm-hmm. because we, the peacekeepers ent- actually ended up, and again, this was sort of covered up or at least denied, of the peacekeepers ended up turning quite violent. Um, and so like this, this wasn't almost new. It's just it was more marketing. We have to matter. Um, and he, he said further, Canada does not have a history as a pacifist or neutralist country. Canada has soldiers that are buried all over Europe because we fought in defense of liberty and we're not about to back away from a challenge now because we think somebody might get hurt. Um, yeah, we are. We, we did World War II, so we have to keep doing more of this. This is the same as World War II, by the way. And, and Korea, too. And, and, and I also wonder, too, if there's some sort of, I don't know what the right word here would be, but maybe like desire to, for the Canadian political establishment to prove itself because Canada did not participate in Vietnam. It, 
it was it was sort of one of the reasons we actually took upticked was uh, Iraq that we talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. So we we went into Afghanistan. We didn't go into Iraq, and we always felt like we owed the United States because we didn't go in. Because um, you didn't go in in 1991. You mean in yep. the Gulf War? Yeah, yeah. We didn't yeah. go in okay. in 91, and we were like we felt we owed the states. You know, um, we and and so Afghanistan was kind of this thing where it's like, well, this is our good war, and in fact. What you hear the the sort of split that between the American Democrats and Republicans, right? Where in two thousand four and two thousand eight, Democrats ran hard on we need to massively amplify our troop presence in Afghanistan and reduce our troop presence in Iraq because Afghanistan's the good war. That was in Canada from the beginning. Yep. Um, where so our this is a quote from Stockwell Day at the time. So I, I went back and I, I got all the all the quotes from all the leaders at the time. Um, uh, or Stockwell Day said. Um, uh, he's the head of the Canadian Alliance Party, uh, Nate, which is basically like, imagine if all the guys who went out on like lake boats for Trump had a political party since <laughs> 2001. Got basically. it. <laughs> uh, he published an op-ed in the Globe and Mail, our uh, liberal newspaper, <laughs> saying, let's stand by our PM. Now is no time to criticize Canada's leadership. We have a just war to wage. And you can feel him typing that with one hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This, this. There was and when we talk about sort of adventurous, uh, the imperial adventure mania. It's this idea that this idea that sort of, it, if you're an imperial power, you feel as though every moment you are not out conquering, that you are restrained, you're holding back, you're not doing what you're born to do. I, and, I mean, I'm reminded of the Madeleine Albright quote where she said something to the effect of, "If we we pay all this money for our military, why why don't we use it, or why aren't we using it?" And I'm like, that's, you know, taken as an indication of like a really sort of venal, just like real politic kind of icy blooded approach to the world. But I I genuinely feel like that's probably more common among, you know, Western political elites and such than people necessarily want to admit to themselves. It's fairly common. I feel like it's fairly common in Canada. I mean, there's been a running debate uh, over the last let's say a week about whether Canada should have uh, should build fighter jets essentially huh. <laughs> you know yeah. um, and, and like we're ju- and, and to think we're just if we build fighter jets then I don't know some other Stockwell day when it comes time to like ask the hard questions about Venezuela or whatever is going to say why are we not using the fighter jets these are the These same things- people who would advocate for the building of the fighter jets too yeah. you know it's- yeah exactly yeah it's it's the because I mean like I think it, it's hard to if you are if you are this kind of power if you are a but you like to sell yourself as that benign power you can sort of it's very hard to stop yourself from sort of revealing essentially your own uh, bloodlust um, and finally uh, now uh, um, Bernard Landry Parti Québécois uh, was um, sort of lukewarm. Uh, but the NDP is the one I was most looking forward to talking oh, about. Oh man, <laughs> the NDP. Uh, it's again, uh, Canada has like prefigured so many other developments in Western politics. It's Starmer's Labor in two thousand one. Yikes! Um, so what, NDP it leader, answers the question: yeah. What if a what if a left wing party was fundamentally like indistinguishable from the right wing party on uh, foreign policy? <laughs> Sounds familiar. Let's be perfectly honest. Uh, NDP, you know what it is? It's we just 
we have a liberal party that's indistinguishable from the right on foreign policy and then a left wing party that's indistinguishable. It's basically our Lib Dems and our like our Starmer's labor just sort of we've had those forever. Um, the NDP letter leader Alexa McDonough at the time actually opposed the assault on Afghanistan saying that um, it should have been a it should be uh, w- the fight. Uh, the global fight against terrorism should be waged under the uh, aegis of the U.N. You didn't follow the rules. <laughs> Got to follow the rules. Yeah. If we're if we are going to um, if we are going to uh, invade and occupy uh, a country uh, that was sort of, you know, like you'd say, uh, barely related, tangentially related to the attack on the U.S., uh, we must do it by the book. Um, so the, the NDP essentially are the uh, uh, um, had it up to here, uh, like cop boss that you get in buddy cop movies. Where it's like that's against regulation. You do things by the book here. Yeah, your badge and your gun. <laughs> Give me your badge and your gun. I have to send it to some guys in the Donbass. Yes. I think one of the things about it too that I feel like trying to look back on how this stuff was portrayed at the time was there was so much um, call it international disdain. I mean, obviously, rightfully, when you think about human rights abuses and stuff, but because of the Taliban's image abroad, I think there wasn't really, there weren't very many people making the case for like, yeah, okay, so Al-Qaeda has training camps here, but everyone, almost everybody who perpetuated 9-11 was Saudi or Egyptian. One guy had been in Afghanistan, I think, during the Mujahideen era. Um, the attacks were planned in mostly in Hamburg. Um, that wasn't really, they didn't really factor into it. Like Afghanistan became the sort of like, the 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 target for all of the outrage about it without ever addressing the fact that like you know up until up until 1996 these guys were all in Sudan um you know they had been tolerated in in by and large by the Saudi government they had received money the same way as everybody else had you know from both western governments and the Saudi government in the 1980s to fight the Soviet Union uh, a significant amount of the people involved with planning the attack had originally planned to simultaneously detonate planes over the Pacific. They had a plan they were working on in Jakarta and they got rolled up, I think, because somebody made some dumb mistake. I can't remember what it was that caused them to raid an apartment in Jakarta and they found all these devices. They did run a test run and blow up a passenger in his seat on a flight. Like like a Japanese businessman died on a, on a, on a flight, like a relatively regional flight in uh, somewhere, I think, in, in Indonesia or Malaysia. So, like, there were so many complicating factors, but it just seemed like, no, like, we, the Taliban are bad. And also, not, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda has, has training camps in Afghanistan. So, we're going to go there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, within six months or la- three months, the war is over fundamentally in terms of the Taliban government. And then it suddenly just becomes like, well, um... Now we're gonna now we're gonna establish a liberal democratic state somehow, yeah, Tim and Hortons. everyone's gonna do yeah. it, and we're gonna have Tim Hortons there, and they're gonna have a parliamentary system. We found this guy. Uh, please don't ask about his relationship with the Taliban uh, and his relationship <laughs> with natural gas suppliers. He's gonna be the president. Um, but it's cool. They have a they have the you know a lower house and an upper house and a constitution. They've got a national anthem now. Um, we're gonna respect human rights here, and. And then it just became this, it, I don't know, it just it spirals into this, into this mission creep that, you know, we can't leave until this is, this country is Switzerland or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it yeah. to me, the fact that Canada 
has this reputation or it sells itself as having this reputation of sort of enlightened liberal governance, the fact that it took Canada so long to extricate itself from this kind of is it's an indictment of Canada. But it, to me, it's also an indictment of the mission itself that like basically everyone signed up for a thing and then just decided like, oh, well, I guess when you get down to it, we're like the nice version of Alexander the Great. So, we're going to make this work. And it, it, I, I just, I struggle. I mean, I was, I was there 12 years ago. The fact that it just ended now stuns me. The fact that it started when I was 16 completely blows my mind. And, you know, I guess yeah. in a way, I, 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 I imagine that the rhetoric in Canada for all of like the enlightened, you know, self-description that Canada has mm-hmm. was probably the same and that, you know, as you're, I know you're going to point out, Riley, that a number of the people or at least one particularly big figure involved in selling this kind of like clash of civilization sort of generational long war conflict with the Muslim world is Canadian. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You might say the guy that wrote the log line. Yes. And it's not Mark Stein. Yeah. It's somebody else. <laughs> It's someone we've discussed before, mm-hmm. but um, I think like Nate, I think it's especially sort of important to point out, right, that in the context of if that's what actually happened, what we did, what how Canadians understood the mission in Afghanistan was that it is essentially a continuation of what we did in Rwanda, right? Basically, this is. Yeah. I I actually is, I remembered something the other day, like when I as I was watching the um, troop withdrawal for or the uh, sorry. Uh, as I was watching the uh, the planes take off from Kandahar, I was remembering reading or just being inundated with articles about the electoral process in Afghanistan every now and then. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd see there'd be a full court press in Canadian media where, you know, you have uh, women in hijabs holding up like a finger that is daubed with uh, paint, right? Yeah. So that they Ink, voted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just then, so that they voted, yeah. And then, you know, the, the sort of... Uh, realizations that came out after the uh, Afghanistan papers were leaked um, that, you know, the CIA was stuffing ballot boxes. Like, it was just all theater, right? Yeah, I mean, I I recall this because I was really involved with the logistics of the um, 2009 presidential election in Afghanistan in the province that I was in. And uh, it was wild to me because the way the mission was sort of structured was that we facilitated all the sort of delivery and collection of ballot materials, but they made it a really big point of being like, no troops are allowed to secure polling sites and no troops are allowed inside polling sites. And, you know, they stood up, uh, in some cases, tribal militias that were loyal to the government to provide auxiliary security. And, you know, we, they came into it, I can't remember if it was UNAMA or it was the the Independent Electoral Commission in Afghanistan, but they had this plan that was like, oh, we're going to truck the ballots in and out by road, which the roads were so inaccessible where we were that that would have been really dangerous and and logistically not possible. And we wound up coming up with a plan where we got, um, this is really grim, uh, Presidential Airways, the air subsidiary of Blackwater to fly uh, the ballot boxes to these district district drop-off points and then fly them back. And I thought to myself, hey, fucking hell yeah, you know, like at least this functioned the way it was supposed to. And then maybe a month later, two months later, um, there was some reporting that they had analyzed it and they were like, yeah, Paktika province was probably one of the worst, if not the worst for ballot stuffing. And what I realized was because we did that job and got all that shit out there, Two of the places where no one even expected there to be ballots in the first place, what we did was just really help run up the stuffed ballot number count for Hamid Karzai. Mm. And I had gone on leave 
And I came back and the day I came back was the day that uh, Dr. Abdullah had conceded that he wasn't going to ask for a rerun or a recount. And the governor of our province was like, fuck it, hell yeah, throw, we're going to throw a party, have all the, the provincial headquarters people have a party and stuff. And I remember thinking like, yeah, it's sick. We don't have to work and do another election. Sucks that this is a completely compromised one. And it's absolutely, totally obvious how compromised this was. But yeah, at least, you know, less work for us. And I was just one in those moments, I was just like, this is, this is a disaster, man. Like, how can anyone look themselves in, in the eye, like in the mirror and say, oh yeah, we facilitated a, you know, a representative state in this country. Mm. And, you know, that was, like I said, that was 2009. It, from what I can tell, I kind of checked out on keeping up with this stuff. It only ever got worse um, mm. and more obvious. And the yeah. state only became more kleptocratic. And so the extent to which uh, this, like you said, Riley, this became kind of like this civilizing mission, if you will. Like it was really, it's really grim in retrospect because when you go and you can still find those op eds online from, you know, 01, 02, 03, 04, like it, there is such a, an unbelievable sort of like, you know, it's sort of like the same thought process of America, love it or leave it kind of approach to this. Like, if you don't support this, then you hate democracy. Mm. And then it's like, you see what that actually yeah. yielded. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting about this, and I think where it sort of comes back to Canada as well, is that like the... All right. So Canada enters in 2001, ramps up till 2008, then realizes it has to get out, gives itself a few years to get out, and then gets out sort of, sort of six years later in total. Um in that, but within that time, when Canadian General Rick Hillier was uh, the ISAF lead, it was it was kind of his, and it's not entirely his, right? Like this idea is an old one, but it was Rick Hillier that proposes the sort of what he considers to be this uniquely Canadian approach to winning a war, which is the the three Ds: uh, development, defense, diplomacy, the whole of government approach, whatever. It's it's him that actually says, let's do this. He proposes this to Karzai, right? And so part of the great fiction that was the occupation of Afghanistan, as it was sort of sold to the world and used to sort of, you know, to, and used to sort of um, not just sold, sold to the world, but um, sort of foisted on the people who live there and used to silence um, sort of critics in the imperial corps who said we shouldn't be doing this was essentially a Canadian one. Right, that is it. It comes out of of our leadership of ISAF, and um, the theory of change here, right, is sort of basically uh, that. And correct me if I'm wrong, Nate. That you need to have if you if you work on all if we work as diplomats, um, sort of uh, getting people to go to town council meetings and work out their differences through these these rules that we're just taking wholesale from like you know Western European and North American countries and just moving over there. Um, if you have development, so if you have people doing like, you know, micro lending or whatever, uh, and then if you um, uh, uh, defend all of that with some guys with guns, then what will happen is a Tim Hortons will eventually occur, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's that theory. And that's, but that is a, I mean, I, I, that's something that sort of, I think that whole theory, the ability to say, oh, this isn't an unwinnable war. We just have to build this state. Um, or a, a, a war without end. We just have to. The end will happen when, you know, as you say, Nate, Afghanistan is Switzerland. Um, this is something that is used as, as extensively in Canada to justify not just um, 
the the fact of the war, but to justify extending the war. I, I would also throw into, and I'll I'll throw it to Dan after this in a second. But, but the, another thing that I recall from the U.S. and I really feel like this logic was was deployed throughout all of the the sort of you know G eight G seven um, countries sort of leads on this stuff is that there was the human rights angle that us being there was somehow enshrining human rights and sort of forcing human rights through well <laughs> through militarism and i guess i would say that you may, you may, your listeners and perhaps you you guys saw that video of uh taliban fighters uh sort of exploring abdurashid dostum's house in Jozjan province, uh, outside of Mazar Sharif, how luxuriously, insanely appointed it was, and he had this like it looked like a, like a five story. It looked like the worst Ramada Inn you've ever seen in your life. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. Dostum, you know, is like uniquely horrendous among the human rights villains of the Mujahideen era. But you know, I've spoken to people who worked in media there, and and you know, you would hear stories like if you were going to run, trying to run a story that made Dostum or Dostum's people look bad, he would call a reporter and be like, I'm going to have you detained and I have a hundred guys who are all going to fuck you. Like that was happening under the auspices of the, the um, you know, human rights regime that we are so, somehow enforcing. And the point I would make is that Dostum wasn't a fringe figure. He was appointed to the Afghan government um, as, because the Afghan government, as it was constituted post-2001, for all of the rhetoric behind it, was effectively just like another Mujahideen government in which certain warlords had certain fiefdoms and a lot of money got turned on to, like you said, the three Ds. That, 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 that turn of phrase or the, that sort of rubric I'm not super familiar with, but I understand like the concept behind it. And I mean, I'll give you a, a, an individual example. I mean, you would have situations where you effectively, the economy of a lot of these places was still very poor. It's just that some people who were connected to um, the local government or who had inroads with the military, and sometimes these were, um, you know, uh, expatriate Afghans from America, from Canada, from Western Europe, who'd come back and set up businesses, you know, were just... Were just um, marking stuff up to such an immense degree. So, I remember being tasked with uh, trying to figure out how much it would cost to do structural repairs and repainting on a local hospital. And this was the kind of thing that if you had a crew of 10 guys, it would probably take you about two weeks. It was interior and exterior painting. Um, I would expect something like that would probably cost, I mean, in in the United States would probably cost, you know, in the realm of $100,000. And if I remember correctly, like the, the, they were looking at, at something like $75,000 just for material and not labor. And they were probably looking at about twice as much to perform it. Uh, and in one case where they had worked with the same contractor, they discovered that he had adulterated all of the paint with gasoline. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for one, one of the workers had um, to be treated medically from inhaling the fumes while painting. And for another, when you when you cut paint with gasoline, like it will bubble very quickly. Like it w- when there's any humidity indoors, and you can imagine in a in a country where a lot of the heating in winter is done by wood burning stove. Uh, when there's humidity indoors, it starts to bubble immediately. So, like that stuff won't last more than a year with with regular use. And that's just I mean that's just one example of it. But like there was so much. It was just like it was like a false kind of construction economy with reconstruction funds, and at one point there was a Wall Street Journal article I remember reading this that uh, they had analyzed paperwork from like export logs and things from Kabul International Airport, and they had determined this would have been about oh nine or ten that they had determined that in terms of just what what was legally declared on paper, 
something like $3 million in cash left Kabul airport every day in pallets on flights to the Emirates. Uh. So like when we talk about all this stuff, like, I mean, okay, diplomacy, you've basically enshrined the guys that were running warlord rings as government ministers. Um, You talk about development. Like I said, like a lot of it was just basically slipshod graft and it wasn't even really benefiting locals that much because more often than not, those people were paid a dollar a day at most to do work. But people who had the connections were, were pocketing huge amounts of money. And as far as defense goes, uh, those same, the same warlordism, like that was more or less how they f- uh, established some of the local security in these places, like uh, less so the army, but certainly the police and some of the other like m- security forces were just, it would be like a guy from a district would be like, hey, I have a hundred fighters. And they're like, all right, you're the police chief. Now here's uniforms. And so in a way, like, the notion that this was a coherent state and the state was being built over the course of 20 years, like I can't, I can only speak for a narrow sliver of that, but like, that's not what I experienced. And no, I mean, it's depressing as fuck, but none of this comes as a surprise to me. It's just going back and listening to this lofty rhetoric and then being told like, well, if you, if you thought that the troops should leave Afghanistan, then you're going to, you, you're, you're abandoning, you know, um, Afghan women's rights activists to the Taliban. It's just like, I'll tell you, I don't know what it's like in Kandahar where the Canadian forces were, but where I was, very little had changed from the Taliban rule in terms of the civic participation of women in society. Girls mm-hmm. didn't go to school. There were no female politicians. There were no female soldiers or police. Uh, and in most cases, the Taliban basically had, or the, the local insurgents had basically said, all right, you want your schools, boys can go to school. If we see any girls going to school, we're going to lock them in the school and light it on fire. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that for shock effect. Like that was anyone who was there who was out outside of a base can probably tell you a similar story that that was, that was the status quo in these areas. So the idea that, that this was a universal thing that suddenly got reversed, like that, that's just not, that was not my experience at all. I mean, in, in Kandahar, it was sort of much, it was, it would have been much the same, right? Where, yeah, it was just sort of was 1996 kind of the whole time. Yeah. I mean, Kandahar um, city, you might've had yeah. civic society things, but like, yeah, Kandahar province, yeah, Kandahar province. Yeah, and, I mean, even more conservative than where I was. And so for example, the other thing about Kandahar province is that, is that like, what would happen is like the Karzai government would appoint someone to go be like, you know, run, I don't know, transport for Kandahar province and they just would never go. Mm. Or Hamid Karzai's brother was very, he was, I think he was like the head of the, the brigade commander or something similar for the Afghan National Police. Like everyone knew that he was involved with heroin trafficking or opium trafficking. Yes. Like he was one of the senior figures. When he was assassinated, it was a huge surprise because there was sort of like, wow, I thought there was like a detente between him and the Taliban that they both got their share of opium trafficking. Like, it, yeah, the, the, the idea that, um, that in the brief 20 year span, this country was stable and normal, that it was sort of like, you know, that we, that we snapped our fingers and it became Bhutan or something like that is insane. I mean, it's absolutely insane. It has no bearing. I mean, I was only very briefly in Kabul. Kabul was far more developed and more like a modern city than where I had been. Mm-hmm. But the idea that it, that, that, that this was this universal benefit across the board, that seems like people who are not there congratulating themselves for something they don't really know that much about. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, I'm wary of that in America. And I reckon in Canada, given the political tendencies I hear about when I edit this show, <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of faith that they're going to do much better. And so I, so build, building on that a little bit, right? We say, like, this is where we were up until 2008. In 2008, there was a parliamentary inquiry about whether or not we should still be there. And it was led by the same uh, Manly who said, we have to go so we can matter. 
and um, sort of, and this sort of will tie back to what we're talking about about Kandahar. So Manley says in 2008, if I've learned one thing from this inquiry, it's that there is no obvious answer to the question of Canada's future role in Afghanistan. Uh, Yes, there is. Fuck off. Uh, But our presence in that land does matter. Canada's commitment in Afghanistan matters because it concerns global and Canadian security, Canada's international reputation, there that is again, uh, and the well-being of some of the world's most impoverished and vulnerable people. But as we discussed, like, Canada didn't really help with that. Not really. And one of the key things that we're talking that we that we do right as and as canadians especially after the manly report is we say we are going to focus on a whole of government approach so we're no longer doing the 3d's as our sort of cover for yeah like a colonial occupation basically we're now saying we're doing the whole of government approach where we're going to our where we're going to engage with the department of education and we're going to engage with all of these other other things well, I places mean- we wouldn't normally engage I thought I was going to get away with not bringing up Ukraine on on this episode, but here we <laughs> no, here, no, no. But here we are. Uh, you know, at, over the last year, as I've been um, digging into like the minutia of what this government spent on uh, Operation Unifier and uh, some of our other sort of democracy and human rights promotion uh, programs in Ukraine. It's it's very similar. I mean, that's that's the sugar pill that turns the money that that turns the money tap on, and uh, but the results are they're rarely what they're sold as, right? Like, I mean, just mm. what just a week ago there were uh, riots uh, in front of Ukrainian parliament by far right uh, people opposed to um, essentially any kind of ramping down of the war in Donbass. You know, I, I was and, thinking that about that. That's a that's a really good comparison because the difference between how it's sold to a domestic audience and the relative frankness with which the people who are actually there that are receiving the support are like, no, we're we're Nazis. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, that disconnect. You know what I mean? If you if you look into these individual programs, uh, if you if you go and see what you know, General Affairs Canada or is is spending or well, the targeted spending that we're doing, none of this shit has any effect, you know? And, and mm. Nate, like you said, oftentimes it is going to people who, if not, you know, uh, out and out, uh, elements of a group that would be, we would consider to be anti-human rights, then at least they're adjacent to that, you know? I guess I'm not surprised. And, and the one thing before you move on, Riley, that I would just throw on there too, is that, my perspective is that, you know, I, I talked to you about this before we started recording that I remember seeing, I believe, a, a news documentary about the Canadian military in Afghanistan and this kind of like Keystone Cops aspect of guys just fucking around. And in one case, they, I believe, either out of fright or by mistake, fire uh, 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 one of their assault rifles into the ground near a moving vehicle that then swerves in panic and overturns and someone is seriously hurt and has to be medevaced. I reckon that for the people living there, it doesn't matter if the, you know, digital camo pattern on the uniform is slightly different. You know what I mean? Like to that, to, to the people who are suffering from that, it's all the same. And if you look at, if, if, if Canadians try to excuse the participation and the results of it as saying like, oh, well, we, we, we went into it with better intentions than Americans. It's like, well, yeah, well, the net result is the same regardless of, of who it is. And I mean, and I recognize like I'm former military, like I obviously hugely culpable in that. But it's also one of those things where I think people need to be honest with themselves about like, regardless of how it was sold, what it wound up being was a disaster. And I think anybody who was there who was open, had their eyes open about it could tell you that 
and the extent to which so much of this seems to be coddling the feelings of people back home, if you will, to me is like, is really insidious because it just sort of implies that, that there will be no lessons really learned from this. Because well, it's the same thing, right? If you try to learn a lesson from this, and if you try to like, it doesn't matter if all of our lofty human rights goals were or weren't accomplished, right? If you try to learn a lesson from this, then you're supporting the Taliban, right? Yeah. Well, and you can always blame the people you were trying to bring human rights to, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that they didn't deserve or they didn't want it hard enough oh, or whatever. They didn't want it hard enough. So, uh, but going, going on with what, Man, with what Manley is saying in this, in, this, in this report, right? Because what he has to do is he has to take the enormous domestic unpopularity of the war, the fact that it very clearly is like now a colonial occupation that's got no end in sight. He has to sell it. So he says, at the same time, I realize many Canadians are uneasy about Canada's mission in Afghanistan. They wonder what it's all for, whether success is achievable, and in the end, whether the results will justify the human and other costs. I can assure Canadians that each of us on the panel wrestled with this question throughout our inquiry. And we find ourselves with our allies in a situation of conflict in a land that is far from us, little known by us, and where our interests do not seem (laughs) (laughs) self-evident. You almost have to like... How do you, how, how, when this, the answer is staring at you right in the fucking face, you are unable. You're saying it. Yeah. (laughs) You're saying, you're saying the thing. You've solved it. The question of Canada's future role, actually, I think you'll find, defies a simple answer. Uh, Because we want to do what we want to do, and we don't care about any of this stuff that you care about. But we have to make a show that we're like, at least racked by it. Um. With, they say, right, you know, without the presence of the international security forces, chaos would surely ensue. And it's like, I, yeah, I, I guess so. But chaos is still ensuing. Uh, and, and the panel said that uh, must lear- the panel learned early that we must be careful to define our expectations for success. Afghanistan is a deeply divided tribal society racked by decades of war in one of the poorest countries on Earth. There should be no thought that after five or ten years of Western military presence or aid, Afghanistan will resemble Europe or North America. So we're doing a little bit of goalpost shifting here. But we came to the conviction that with patience, commitment, financial, and other forms of assistance, there is a reasonable prospect that his people will be able to live together in relative peace and security while living standards slowly improve. And their plan basically to be like, look, we did a lot of military things and none of that happened. All of it failed. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to do it a little bit differently by changing our 3Ds approach to a whole of government approach, which is different, right? Um, and so a lot of this involved, say, supporting the Afghan National Police, which, again, as Nate, you say, are like rebadged, uh, you know, um, warlord, uh, warlords armies. I mean, the, the thing that I would say about the police was that there this is this is will probably come as very little surprise to people that what professional competence did exist in the Afghan army and not the police was primarily because of the fact that there were senior leaders in the Afghan National Army who had you know, entire careers worth of professional military experience uh, working for the the military of the DRA, and then also who had significantly been trained in the Soviet Union. So they they had a kind of uh, a, a military structure called a kind of regimental structure and a chain of command. And like they weren't great, but like they were better than the police, which which like I said, the only unifying factor was that they had uniforms. Um, I my impression was that you know, I mean, I put it this way, like. If you keep if 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 you are doing something and you're putting money into it and you're like all right well I'll build the first step and you know I'm gonna 
I'm going to build a pyramid, you know, and I got to start with the first layer of bricks. And if every single brick gets sold for scrap before it's even set, and you just keep taking loads of bricks, and you keep like at some point you you have to admit to yourself damn, this pyramid sure seems fucking low. You know, like it sure seems small as hell because it doesn't actually exist. And the argument that I'm making here is that that level of, and I'm not blaming the individual policemen. I'm not blaming the the lower level people. This was all stuff that was happening at levels where even if you wanted to complain about it as a as a, a person on the front line, like on the Afghan side, like you, you had no recourse and you just get told to go fuck yourself or worse. Um, but this, the, 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 the perf- lack of any kind of progress in terms of developing any institutions there, everybody at the leadership level, both certainly on the Afghan side, but even more so on the ISAF side, they all knew this. Like they knew this, they knew this in 2005 and they certainly knew it in 2018 or 2019 when those papers got leaked. Um, and so like Canada's saying, oh, we're going to develop the national, the Afghan national police. It's like, I would really love to know what the actual Canadian calls, you know, say diplomats, military people at the junior level, like we're seeing, because I, I'm pretty sure I could, I could fucking write it from memory, despite not being in the Canadian military and not having been in Kandahar, because I've never met anybody who's like, oh, no, 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 no. We had this one little corner where it was like, it was, it was basically Slovenia and everywhere else was shit like that. That's not been my experience. The only difference that I saw was in some places, the, the relative, the level of insurgency was lower in the beginning. But by the end, the Taliban and ISIS were vying for control of places like Mazari Sharif, which, like, or Badakhshan province, which Badakhshan, like the Taliban, even never even controlled Badakhshan in the nineties. Like, it, 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 genuinely, the situation uh, by the time that the U.S. finally withdrew the last, you know, combat units was worse for the Afghan government than the Northern Alliance's position was in September two thousand one. Yeah. And like, so yeah. all that time, Western governments, Canada included, have been like, oh, no, no, you know, slow and steady wins the race. We're making progress. And it's like, uh, all right, guys. As an example, right, um, one of the things that Manley touts as the actually this sort of is working is he talks about like Afghan GDP growth between, uh, since the invasion started that actually it has been the economy has been growing. But like you wonder how much of that is related to the um, gigantic international uh, sort of military expeditionary force, uh, sort of just existing there more or less permanently. He meant GDP. He meant gross domestic poppy production. <laughs> I would also say that yes, Afghan GDP and per capita income went up, and also the the percentage of people living in absolute poverty increased by like fifteen percent from two thousand one until now. Like the average person is worse off than they were. I mean, and also recently there have been serious issues with drought and what is approaching famine in that country. And Afghanistan's, you know, the the population is almost overwhelmingly rural. Something like 90% of the population, you know, as I understand it, was estimated to be living in in the countryside. That may have changed because there's been some significant internal migration to the cities because of the security situation. You know, Kabul was like 3 million people when the war started and it's something like 6 million people now. But most people who live in the countryside, like their livelihoods are massively dependent upon agriculture that is fed by, you know, rainwater and wells. And so like when there's drought, like there's serious mm-hmm. consequences, both for the economy and for people's standard of living and, you know, access to food. And so things, things, things are, I, I would argue people are in just a de- as desperate a situation, if not more so on average than they were in 2001. 
that's a weird side effect of a lot of Canada's sort of uh, democracy promotion programs is that um, the the standard of living that they can hold up and say, see, we fixed it is totally unevenly distributed between uh, urban centers and and uh, yeah. the countryside. And in a lot of a lot of cases, it just gets worse and worse and worse that the the, the, um, the imbalance increases, you know. Well, if you want to talk about it getting worse, uh, one of Manley's major plans in 2008 in order to like keep selling this war was to say, we're going to hand over c- this uh, situation to civilian control, i.e. like we're going to have civilians do the counterterrorism or the counterinsurgency, excuse me, um, in, in Kandahar. And we're also going to have our big uh, headline projects so people can see how much Canada is helping. Headline projects for polio eradication. Squ- and this is other than just like uh, building the capacity for the police or, go, or sort of having like town councils where people can, again, like make decisions on anything that's not important. You know, if it's important, the, the Western military will, of course, be making that decision. Um, but um, with the, the, the headline projects that Manley proposes, the big ones, the Sea Canada Helps projects, as we say, polio eradication, school building, and the, uh, the completion of a large dam uh, in Kandahar. Um, as of uh, 2011, sort of when this phase of uh, the occupation ended, uh, polio uh, rose. Um, the schools that were meant to benefit 9,000 students, uh, most of them were abandoned in, dis- in disarray. And uh, the dam, which was supposed to reach a, which was supposed to double um, the dam improvement, was supposed to double crop yield by cleaning up river silt, um, wa- has since been mothballed. None of it was accomplished. Zero of it. It got worse. Yeah, that sounds about right. I, I mean, and something I'd point out too is that as the situation, the security situation in the rural areas got worse, you would find that, um, you know, aid agencies that were mostly the ones that were affiliated with the government because outside of Kabul, it was very difficult for international charities to do a lot of work. Um, it was almost impossible in some of the more restive areas because it was just not safe enough even for their local uh, Afghan staff. So what would wind up happening is you would see, and I, ma- I imagine in, in Kandahar province with the Canadians, it was probably similar. You would basically see situations where all of the development stuff was more or less military, like escorted, mm. if you will. And those then the things that right. were built would either become targets or if the security situation got too bad, they couldn't continue. And and furthermore, what that, like you were talking about previously, what that would lead to is this overabundance of construction projects in a city uh, and then nowhere else in the province. So, you know, people in, you know, like Warmame district of Paktika, you know, expressed to coalition troops in 2002, like, hey, we'd really like a well, or we'd really like some help cleaning out. They use these systems of, um, of, of underwater canals called carezes, cleaning out carezes. And like that had basically been a thing they'd been promised in 2002. And by 2012, it still hadn't happened. But, you know, Ghazni City or Sharana City or Gardez City might have gotten a bunch of new things because they're literally adjacent to a big airfield you know, where there's a huge Afghan and American military presence. And so on a long enough timeline, like people can tout these things and say, hell yeah, we did this. Like we built the school or we built this uh, community like organizing center or we built like a vocational center or like an agricultural institute. But that only like, once again, like if you don't live in the big cities or if you can't go to those places without potentially having to cross checkpoints or roads that have been mined, like none of that is benefiting mm-hmm. you. And, and I, I recall yeah. very much, you know, 
encountering people like when we were we were sort of uh, setting stuff up to be packed out to be loaded onto helicopters for the um, the election. You'd meet kids who had been hired for the day as porters, and they would just ask you for money, and you'd be like. Uh, I'll just be like, yeah, man, here I got like, you know, here's 50 Afghani or whatever. And it's sort of like, what do you guys do for work? And they're like, there's no jobs. Like, we don't, we don't have jobs. Like, no one hires us. Like, you guys pay people to build stuff and they bring mm-hmm. in people from Kabul or Organi or from Ghazni and all their workers work for them and then they go home. Like, they don't hire us. I was going to say, it's that, it's that every single time, right? What, what sort of it sits at the bottom of this very sort of optimistic um, and benign. Um, cover that goes that goes on top of again this like you know um, imperial invasion right this benign cover of we're going to go do capacity building it itself sits on this kind of you know delusional idea of how like societies and economies are built they just think if we line up the right institutions in the right order and just get people to really commit to them by just sort of magic basically then we are going to generate a Tim Hortons at some point. Like that's the theory, right? That if we get, if we just have the right buildings in the right places, and the buildings are thought of by people as the court where you go to adjudicate a property dispute. And by the way, you have property. See, it says in this paper. If we can just instantiate all those institutions in people's minds, then then things will just develop. It's an almost like totally, completely ideas-driven view of how development actually works. Yeah. Just this thing of yeah, if we have the right ideas, technocratic. Like, yeah, well, it's it, but it's so so not material, right? And of course, it could never be material because ultimately, what you're do- when you're running a colony, you have to obscure the reason that you're there. You cannot. You you must. You must always sort of have these stories. And in the in the 19th century, it was the story of like you know we're going to improve the savage races or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And here it's to say we're going to build we're going to build nations. It's and it's the same. It's the same thing at base, uh, not just the sort of racism of it, but also the idea that if only the pictures in people's heads change, if only the ideas change, if the way they think about the significance of this town council changes, then if only we can, then then all of these material changes will flow from these basically changes in people's mental states. It's extremely frustrating from a Canadian perspective to watch people try and push this too, because you would think that the people pushing this, these ideas, these not this non-material analysis of change, right? They are Canadian. They should be able to extend their worldview back to 300 years and look at Canada, a former colony, you know, (laughs) it's all here. All the history is here. But, and it's, it's, it's something where I mean, you can we can understand that it's wrong, and we can understand why they get it wrong on purpose, as well. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know. I think I don't think John Manley particularly sort of cares if there is a sort of successful. I mean, I think he would like there to be, if only because he would be the man who built Afghanistan by like, you know, he took the Tim Hortons out of the airbase in Kandahar and like put them in 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 the city where they could flourish. Um, like you could understand sort of for his own personal aggrandizement, but like. I don't know. These sort of liberal governments don't really care if it works or not. The point is to be there, you know. So you're important. Um, and the the thing the thing that distinguishes Canada it's the point is to be there. Also, don't get mad at us because we're good guys. It's it's got that additional yeah. layer of uh, the point is to be there so people can catch our sort of inherent wonderfulness, right? That we can we can bestow upon them 
sort of not the lessons we actually learned, of course, the lessons we like to think we learned. But I mean, and I would also point this out too, that I think a lot of of, uh, NATO member countries that are not the United States have gone into it with a similar perspective that, like you said, to, to be relevant and to be like, well, we're equal participants in this sort of, you know, global unified West, putting that in scare quotes. And then invariably they they like you said really believe their own propaganda about like the inherent goodness and rightness and professionalism of their you know their forces their their diplomatic elements and so on and then they they have to feign surprise when for example like australia just recently had a a big investigation uh, come forward about like unbelievable levels of uh illegal killings of people of killings of detainees on the part of their special forces in afghanistan or the Germans, for example, uh, had a bunch of scandals where it was revealed that their soldiers were posing for photos with like all sorts of like really gross shit with corpses, uh, things along those lines. Yeah. Um, you know, you have sto- you have stories of just like inc- I mean, even 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 things that don't make big headline news stories. But every time a vehicle gets shot up at a checkpoint. Every time that, uh, you know, there's a road collision because military vehicles run civilian vehicles off the road, like you cannot imagine the level of outrage and frustration and powerlessness that creates among the population that's doomed to live, that's forced to live among this and have this all decided for them. And invariably, like... It do, to me, it doesn't matter how much, you know, how much more inclusive or open-minded or like, you know, f- on a functional level, uh, you know, well-running the governance is of these countries. Because I mean, as much as Canada drives us nuts, you can make the point that in some ways its government, you know, is at least less sclerotic and insane than America's. But the same results keep happening and no one seems to want to draw the conclusion that like when you put people in an endless war of occupation, this is what occupation troops mm. do. And you are not immune. No force is immune. You shouldn't put them there. You shouldn't do that. And you have to bear the consequences for that. And I, I just, I, I'm frustrated by it because yeah, like, you know, Britain has its own issues and I'm not super schooled up on it but i'm sure knowing the british army's history that like there's plenty of stuff that's gone on much like what you know what what's happened that's perhaps more reported on amongst americans or australians and people like that and i just to me it's like there's no real discussion about like what this actually means in practice it just seems to be no we do it because if we don't do it then people are going to think we're losers because we're not participating and we're not going to get full participation points and we're not going to be asked to the senior prom and it's like Guys, this is a fucking war. Like, why? This is a war with no point. But all, all of these people live lives with no point. Like, if you're the, yeah. if you are, if you're like a some like you know Canadian political media hack, you know that, or if you're a sort of liberal uh, defense minister or whatever, like you don't exist to, you you exist to just sort of carry out the motions that are sort of been programmed into you. You know, you you know what it is you have to do and you do it, and you and and. And there's, it doesn't matter that there's no point because it's just, well, they're doing it. And it doesn't, and, and for them, all that matters is being important. It's having the bigger lanyard. And, you know, they want the, they want their, they want that honor. They want to be there in history. And when you're standing at the head of an imperial, you know, war engine, there's only one way you know to be in history and that's to drive it. Yeah. That's yeah. it. And if you think that, if you think these experiences in Afghanistan, uh, you know the 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 
very obvious tragic failure of of this uh is going to teach anyone any lessons here in canada you'd be totally wrong uh no because because you know just and i'll keep this quick but just a couple of months ago uh there's a right-wing think tank here called the mcdonald laurier institute who published one of the most batshit white papers i think i've ever read which is uh the title just says it all from middle to major power correcting course in canadian foreign policy uh and you know i won't go through the whole thing at all i'm just going to mention some of the recommendations are uh fucking naval and air patrols in the south china sea taiwan strait and east china sea uh boots on the ground in latvia um Mm -hmm. a total ban on like any sort of Chinese telecommunication company and, uh, and yeah, just, just psychotic, uh, dumping of money into the, into military infrastructure and fighter jets. So no one learned anything, you know, more adventurism. Uh, we need, we need a place at the table. I, what I will say about the MLI paper and the ghouls, uh, who who are part of that organization is at least they're a little more honest than the liberals when they talk about why they want to do it. Yeah. They're doing it for clout, you know, international clout. Liberals cry when they do it. Conservatives cheer when they do it, but they all want to fucking do it. Yeah. And with all that, you know, I think it's probably time for us to, to wrap up this episode. Um, so I just want to say, uh, Nate, thank you so much uh, for coming on and hanging out with us today and then uh, listening to this again later. <laughs> Yeah, well, can I can I just throw something out Please. there, which is that no matter where you live, if you live in Canada, in America, in the United Kingdom, anywhere, um, given the, the 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 rainbow coalition we've just described of nations that were involved in creating the situation in Afghanistan, it's very very likely that uh, you're listening to an English language podcast. You probably live in a country that had some involvement, and I feel like there's going to be there are a lot of politicians that are really really excited for this to die out from the headlines so that they can go back to not admitting afghan refugees and not helping the people who who are now at risk because of uh them having promised them something that they refused to deliver and canada has uh said that they are going to take in 20,000 refugees which is more than the uk has said it's going to take in over the course of the next 5 years but still like that's an incredibly small number given the amount of people affected and given the situation and so I just hope that wherever you are, that you, if you are bothered by this, the the best thing in my opinion that you can do is both uh, try to make community pressure to help asylum seekers and refugees, regardless of where they're from in your community, and also make, make your politicians sweat a hell of a lot if they think that they can fucking ignore this problem and let these people just, just consign these people to their fate. Like... I've been in the process of helping people sort paperwork and kind of get paperwork triage to try to apply for stuff where they can get on charter flights. And, you know, I've been looking at stuff like, you know, people sending me their documents of of 10 years of working for the coalition, you know, sending passport scans for them. And like, in one case, seven small children, children of the age of 12, like these are people who are in absolute dire straits. And like, it's very, very likely that they could, they could be in a horrible situation if it doesn't get sorted. And what I mean by sorted is safe passage to a place that they can then be granted asylum in the countries that invaded their home country. So like, to me, at least that's what I'm focusing my energy on specifically, both like as, as stuff is, if we can get things opened up, trying to help people who are internally displaced or trying to get on flights out of Afghanistan, but also the, just the, the, the number of refugees that are already in the United Kingdom and similarly in, you know, the U S and Canada and elsewhere. And I would just say like, if you've got, if you care and if this bothers you, like that's the thing that, that you can actually help and make a difference because the problem is, is that the, 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 the headlines and the recriminations and the fucking crocodile tears aside like 
chances are very good that in a week or in a month, like this will disappear from headlines and those people will be left to either their fate in Afghanistan or to uh, an asylum seeker system across the, the, the West, if you will, that basically seeks every possible recourse to, to deport people or deny them basic dignity. The United Kingdom has under normal circumstances, only accepts 16% of asylum applications for unaccompanied minors. But in the case of Afghan minors, it's less than 7%. The United Kingdom's deported, deported 15,000 people back to Afghanistan since 2005, more than any other European country. So like that is the status quo for these people. And like they are in desperate circumstances. So like if you can't help, that's that will make a difference. And the problem is, is that far fewer people than you think are going to be raising hell about this. So if this does bother you, if any of the stuff that you've heard bothers you, like that's a thing that you can literally make a difference. So there are going to be um, some links you can follow uh, in the chat that can like help you actually take some action there. And also, if you want to just like respond at us on, on Twitter or like at us in the Patreon, um, where we post both episodes, we post this episode both places um, with any links to any other ones in your area, we'll just we'll put those on the post as well. Um, so yeah, please do do that. Uh, otherwise, yeah, I think uh, it's probably about that time. So Nate, once again, thank you for listening to this. Uh, well, coming on it and then listening to it later as you edit it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Nate. And uh, thank you to everyone who's uh, listening to us or subscribing to us on Patreon. Uh, we'll see you in a couple of days uh, as Dan and I uh, jack into the cybernet. Uh, and talk about the um, the threat facing Canada's smart toasters. Yeah, that's right. We are uh, getting our wetware hack. <laughs> <laughs> Later, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.